Hello, I'm Geoffrey Wyatt, Senior Astronomy Educator at Sydney Observatory, and you're listening to the September Night Sky Guide. Don't forget to visit our website at www.sydneyobservatory.com to download the latest sky map, which you'll need to help find your way around the night sky. Now, we've just passed winter. Technically, of course, we're still in winter, but for some strange reason, Australia likes to change seasons on the first of the month rather than use the equinox and the solstice like most other places do. So for the first part of the month, we're still in winter. Although we don't have the highest part of the Milky Way directly overhead, we are actually nicely placed to see an imaginary line called the ecliptic and to get a lovely view of the Milky Way going fairly well from north to south. Now, the ecliptic is, of course, an imaginary line that's simply the path that's followed by the sun, the moon and the planets as they cross the sky. And at the moment, it goes very nicely east-west. What we're going to do is start off in the western sky shortly after sunset. Now, it might sound silly, but we need to make sure that we can orient ourselves correctly with the cardinal directions of the compass. So, wait for sunset... Look towards the west for the lovely orange-red glow of sunset. Make a note of where it is, and then go back inside and get ready. Print off your star map. Of course, you've downloaded this podcast and perhaps had a, a practice listen. You've got your torch for your star map, a blanket, a pillow, and perhaps a pair of binoculars as well. Now that we've got all our supplies, let's head back outside and start by viewing towards the west. Now shortly after sunset you'll see a relatively bright bluish white star not far above the horizon. This star is the brightest star in the constellation of Virgo. Now Virgo is not a terribly bright constellation or that much to see but it's interesting because it represents the goddess of justice. The brightest star, Spica, is also one of the 57 or so stars that's used for celestial navigation. So if you're ever lost at sea or you're flying your plane high above the Andes somewhere and you need to find your direction, stars like Spica and the other bright stars are fairly important for navigation. Spica is a, a blue-white star, and that's an important thing because straight away, just by looking at the star, we know how hot it is. Now, we've done quite well. We don't travel very far. I mean, people have not been any further than the moon. But we can look at the stars, and just by looking at their brightness, by looking at their colour, we can get a bit of information. Spica, being blue-white, tells us that it's much hotter than the sun. So, first of all, we have the bright star Spica in the constellation of Virgo. Now, I did mention that Virgo is the goddess of justice, and she did, of course, carry with her the scales of justice. If you look west and just progress up ever so slightly, you should be able to see some more bright stars, which, if you look at the star map, will make a lovely triangle. These stars are actually the only one of 13 zodiac star signs, which is not a living animal. In fact, they're the scales of justice, Libra. Now, the zodiac simply means the path of the animals. And these are the constellations, and it's best to think of constellations as a roadmap to the sky. The average person can see perhaps two to 3,000 stars, depending on their age and their eyesight and where they're viewing from. 
it's very difficult to remember which star is which and which part of the sky is which. So astronomers over thousands of years dating back to uh, Ptolemaeus have made up maps or constellations. They're like little suburbs. We now have 88 of them, but 13 of them are famous simply because the sun, the moon and the planets pass through them. And remember the line that the sun, the moon the planets followed? It's called the ecliptic. So the ecliptic passes through 13 of 88 constellations. If you go from Virgo, the next zodiac or uh, path of the animal's constellation is not an animal. As I've mentioned, it's Libra. Libra was actually created by Julius Caesar, who wanted his own uh, birthday constellation. So he broke the claws of Scorpius, the scorpion often turned it into the scales of justice. It really does look like a triangle, but the stars, I must point out, have some fabulous Arabic names. The three brightest stars, Zubin Eshamali, Zubin El-Akrab, and Zubin El-Ganubi. I think this also highlights another beautiful thing about the stars, and that is so many cultures have had input to the night sky. We have Arabic star names, we have Greek constellations, we have Roman names... And then, of course, we have fabulous stories from indigenous cultures all around the world, including the oldest star watchers on the planet, the indigenous people of Australia. After you've found the triangular shape of Libra the Scales, continue on our ecliptic, our line that's joining east and west at the moment, um, which the sun, the moon, the planets follow, and head back up higher into the sky, not quite overhead, but you'll be able to see the only one of the 13 zodiac constellations that really looks anything like its namesake. It is, of course, Scorpius. Now, many people call it Scorpio, but that's not right. It's Scorpius. Scorpius represents the scorpion, and if you look carefully, you'll see a couple of stars. In fact, it's probably best to look for the heart of the scorpion. It's a fairly bright orange-reddish-looking star, it's called Antares. It's a, it's a star that is, in fact, dying. It's absolutely huge, hundreds of times bigger than the sun. But it's so far away, it doesn't look that bright. But Antares, Antares, that name sounds vaguely familiar. In fact, it comes from anti-Aries, meaning rival to Mars. Because every now and then, when the planet Mars passes nearby... They look very, very similar. So this reddish-looking star, which is the brightest one in that area, is in fact the heart of the scorpion. Now, either side of the scorpion's heart, you'll see a, a fainter white star. Go from the fainter white star closer to the western horizon and head down towards the direction of Libra, and you'll effectively come to a T-junction. The star in the middle effectively represents the head of the scorpion, and then on either side we have the claws, which used to go around a lot further into the constellation of Libra, but no longer. If you go back the other way, passing again through the heart, you'll see a long curved tail which curls around and ends in a very painful stinger. To a lot of people it looks a bit like a, an ice hook, if you've seen one of those from a museum, because you don't tend to see them all that often, or perhaps a, a fishing hook. But that is the constellation of Scorpius. 
Scorpius is quite intriguing too because certain indigenous cultures throughout Australia look at a few of the stars in the tail of the scorpion and see a young boy and a young girl who have committed a fairly serious crime and have been pursued into the sky by two nearby bright stars also in the tail of the scorpion and those two stars represent brothers intent on killing as a punishment the young boy and the girl. Now, just behind Scorpius and almost directly overhead is an intriguing constellation that is supposed to be half man, half horse. It is one of the two centaurs in the sky, Sagittarius. Sagittarius represents one of two centaurs in the sky. One of them is very kind and understanding, who was in fact tutor to Achilles and Hercules and Jason from Jason and the Argonauts fame. This one, however, not so nice. In fact, quite a nasty and sometimes violent character whose favourite pastime was to, well, get drunk and go to weddings and cause all sorts of trouble. This particular centaur is actually aiming his arrow at the heart of the scorpion. But I challenge you, if you can see a half-man, half-horse directly overhead in September, you're doing better than I. Because when I look up, I see an old-fashioned teapot. Yes, that's right. If your birthday star sign is, in fact, Sagittarius the Archer, I'm afraid to many people these days, you actually look like a teapot. The beautiful thing is, if you can get away from the bright lights of any city and look up at this time of year and look between Sagittarius and Scorpius, you are, in effect, looking towards the centre of our galaxy. Now, our galaxy is a huge collection of stars, and I think it's often difficult to just understand how big the galaxy is. By the way, our galaxy, what's its name? It's called the Milky Way. This is a good time of year to see our galaxy, the Milky Way, because if you look ever so slightly east of north, you'll see a relatively bright band of stars overhead and down towards slightly west of south. Of course, the Milky Way actually refers to absolutely everything we can see in the night sky except for three things. And they are, of course, the large and small Magellanic Clouds, named after the first person to almost sail around the world, Ferdinand Magellan, and the great galaxy in Andromeda. Every single other thing you can see is part of the Milky Way galaxy. But people tend to think it's only that bright strip that passes overhead. Not the case. So our galaxy is effectively a collection of stars. If we start even simpler, the solar system, what is that? It's simply the system of planets, moons, comets and asteroids that travel around one star. And that star's name is Sol, or the Sun. So that's our family, the solar system. But the family of stars that the Sun belongs to is the Milky Way. There are approximately 200,000 million stars in our Milky Way galaxy. I think that's a very hard number to get a feel for. But I've heard an analogy, and I've yet to check it accurately, and I don't think anyone ever will, but consider this. Take a, an average backyard swimming pool. Fill it three times over with fine grains of sand. That is roughly equal to the number of stars in, in our galaxy. 
Oh, and by the way, in our universe, there are more galaxies than there are stars in our own galaxy. That's an enormous number of stars throughout the universe. Uh, where did the name Milky Way come from, by the way? Well, there are different ideas, but one of them is, of course, uh, from the Latin Via Lactea, by milk. One story comes about because of the Greek goddess Hera. Legend has it that she was walking along with her servants and they came across a baby that had been discarded in the woods. She picked up the baby and at their urging she started to breastfeed it until someone told her that it was in fact the illegitimate son of her husband Zeus, king of the gods. At this point, Hercules, as he was known, latched onto Hera with such ferocity that she shrieked and pulled him away from her breast and milk squirted out across the sky to become the Milky Way. An intriguing idea. Many cultures refer to the Milky Way as being a river of some sort in the night sky. As we pass from Sagittarius high overhead, the next constellation of the zodiac that we come to is one that's relatively simple. It looks like a triangle with a slightly bent hypotenuse. Or if you're a science fiction buff, you may be able to see the Star Trek logo. It is, of course, the constellation of Capricornus, the sea goat. How on earth do you come up with a constellation that's half goat, half fish? The story goes that Zeus was on a picnic, effectively, with everybody else, when suddenly the ground split open and a terrible demon from hell, Typhon, came up and started to attack everybody. In fact, he even attacked Jupiter, king of the gods himself. Now Pan, who was nearby at the time in the form of a goat, thought there's only one thing he could do, and that was to panic. To do this, he started to change into a fish so he could go to the nearest lake or river and swim to safety. So he started to change from his goat form into a fish, but then he realised that Jupiter needed his help. So he played his pan pipes and he played a shrill note that distracted Typhon so Zeus was able to gain the upper hand. As a reward for his assistance, Zeus, or Jupiter, placed Pan into the sky as he was, half goat, half fish. But to most of us it is effectively just a slightly bent triangle. That's quite okay. I think it's wonderful that people use their imagination to put stories to these groups of stars. The stars are beautiful in their own right, but by joining the dots and by using your imagination, it's far more easy to remember the patterns because, remember, we can use the patterns to navigate. And this is perhaps one of the most important uses of the stars for at least the last 10,000 years, to navigate and to work out the time of year. Continue on our journey down towards the eastern horizon now, and the next of the zodiac constellations that we come to is Aquarius, the water carrier. Aquarius is quite difficult unless you really closely look at the sky map. It's a group of stars snuggled up against Capricornus, and it represents the most handsome youth on the earth. His name was Ganymede. He was snatched from the surface of the earth by Aquila the Eagle, which is quite close by, and taken to Olympus to serve water at the table of the gods. You can actually see him pouring water from his, from his sack of water across the sky. 
towards the nearby bright star of Fomalo, ever so slightly in the southwest of where we are at the moment. Fomalo is a, a fairly young star, and it actually looks like it's the brightest star in a paisley swirl. So think of those old-fashioned ties that Dad used to wear quite some time ago. Think of a paisley swirl. Look for one of those in the sky marked by a relatively bright star, and that's the brightest star, Fomalo, in the constellation of Pisces Astrinus, southern fish. And by the way, it's quite good that that southern fish is there drinking the water from the sack of Aquarius, because if he didn't, the myth goes that the water would flow down to the earth and flood it. So as long as the fish is there, we're relatively safe. Uh-oh. Go back ever so slightly towards the south and up a little bit, and you'll actually see a group of stars that makes a fairly large cross. Well, this actually represents Grus the crane. Now, what do cranes eat? Fish. And, of course, this crane is trying to eat Pisces Astrinus, the southern fish. So he's hoping he doesn't succeed. If he does, you never know, the earth may flood. Well, that's a legend anyway. I should point out to the people of the South Pacific, Grus the crane actually represents a fishing post or fishing pole used to catch the fish nearby. So there's quite a bit of cross-pollination of cultures with different patterns in the sky. Just below Aquarius and rising in the east, we can just make out perhaps the hint of the very faint constellation of Pisces, but we'd best leave that for another month. So we've started off in the west, we've passed directly overhead in the centre of our galaxy and down into the west, and we've just tracked the zodiac constellations. Now what I'd like you to do is turn and face the south. Looking towards the south, we should be able to see the Southern Cross starting to set towards the southwest. The Southern Cross is, of course, well worth a note at just about any time of year. It is the smallest of all 88 constellations. It is the newest of all 88 constellations. And quite frankly, it's beautiful. It has three of the top 30 bright stars in the night sky. And if you look at the brightest star, which is at the bottom of the traditional Christian cross, then go in a clockwise direction, even if it's the Southern Cross is upside down, you can always go in the same direction. You get to the second brightest star in the cross, and that's called Beta Crucis. If you can point your binoculars at Beta Crucis, and you really need some way of keeping them lovely and still, you will be able to see brand new baby stars. That's right. In the Southern Cross, you'll be able to see the group of stars which we refer to as NGC 4755. Aha, I hear you say, NGC 4755 is also known as the Jewel Box. The Jewel Box is a group of young stars, no more than perhaps 100 million years old, at round about 7,000 light years away. So they're relatively close. If you look at them through a small telescope or a good pair of binoculars, you may be able to make out a, an A-shaped group of stars. Look ever so carefully, you might pick out that one of the stars is slightly orange-reddish. For such a young star, orange-red is not a good colour. and This indicates that the star is heading towards the end of its life and will probably die as a supernova. When? I don't know. Certainly within the next hundred million years and probably much less than that. 
The Southern Cross, by the way, is also fascinating because to indigenous cultures around Australia, it represents different things. It's important to remember that the indigenous people of this land have been looking at the stars probably longer than any other cultural group on the planet and passing the stories down from generation to generation. But there's a vast difference in the stories that are told. There's no single story across this land. Now, one story I learned while I was living in the Northern Territory is that the Southern Cross represents the footprint of a mighty wedge-tailed eagle. Its name is very difficult for me to pronounce, but it's along the lines of Wuluwuru. So look at the Southern Cross. Don't see a Christian cross, but look at it and perhaps see the footprint of an eagle. But to other Aboriginal communities, it's something very different again. To those communities living near Groot Island in the Northern Territory, it represents a ray swimming along merrily, about to be attacked from the side by the stars Alpha and Beta Centauri, which represent a shark. To the Kanda of southwestern New South Wales near the border of Victoria, the Southern Cross four brighter stars represent the unmarried daughters of a group elder whereas their father is nearby to watch and protect them as the bright star Alpha Centauri. And to other people, and this is really hard because you can't see it from the city, look next to the Southern Cross on a moonless night and you may be able to see a slightly darker patch against the bright Milky Way. This darker patch is often referred to as the coal sack. But to some indigenous communities across this land, it represents the head of the biggest non-stellar constellation. Goodness me, what's a non-stellar constellation? What we're going to look for here is a picture, a constellation, but with no stars in it. In fact, it's the lack of stars that make up this next picture. So the dark patch snuggled up against the Southern Cross represents the head of an emu. Look back along towards the centre of the galaxy, which I mentioned before, near Sagittarius and Scorpius, and you'll see there's a long, thin, dark dust lane where starlight is being blocked. And you'll see that it suddenly widens near the heart of the galaxy. Well, what you're looking at is the head near the Southern Cross, then a long, thin neck heading back towards the centre of the galaxy. And near the centre of the galaxy, where it suddenly widens, you're looking at the body of an emu. So the lack of stars, in this case, is helping us see a picture. If you can see it, it's well worth the time and effort because it is really quite spectacular. I should point out, there's one other great use of the Southern Cross. If you go from the top of the Southern Cross through to the bottom and extend that distance by four and a half times its length, you will come to a very empty part of the sky. There's pretty much nothing there. It represents the constellation of Octans, which is the predecessor to the sextant used for navigational purposes. The point you've just reached, four and a half times the length of the cross going from top to bottom, is in fact the South Celestial Pole. This is the point around which all the stars in the night sky rotate in the southern hemisphere. This is a really good opportunity if you're an amateur uh, photographer because what you can do if you have an SLR is you set your F number to as small as possible and set the exposure to B so you need a cable release. 
point your camera on a tripod at the South Celestial Pole marked by octans that you've just found with the Southern Cross and take an exposure over half an hour or an hour and what you'll see is the magnificent star trail effect. The stars will form lovely concentric lines that show you where the centre of rotation is. It's a very easy way to get a quite spectacular photo. Let's head around from the south now and we'll head back towards the north. And what we're going to do is face due north and we're going to look for the fifth brightest star in the night sky. Now this is also a, another star that's used for celestial navigation if you're an avid sailor or aviator. This is one of the brightest stars, as I mentioned, it's the fifth brightest star, Vega. Vega is intriguing because if you look at it, it's very bright, it's quite low, and if you look almost above and heading towards the east ever so slightly, you cross a fairly bright part of the Milky Way. You'll then come to another fairly bright star called uh, Altair, Eye of the Eagle. You can identify Altair because there's a relatively faint star on either side, and the three of them form a lovely straight line. These two stars are incredibly famous, but not in Australia. You see, in the Northern Hemisphere, Vega, the lower and brighter of these two stars, represents a young girl or a princess in some cultures. The higher of the two represents a young boy, a prince or a, a shepherd boy. Throughout Asia, these two stars are really quite important, but only one day each year. And unfortunately, it's already passed, but we can still see. See, on the 7th of July, these two stars represent uh, a boy and a girl who've been separated by the Milky Way, the river in the sky. And on the 7th of July, birds build a bridge over the Milky Way so the boy and the girl can be together for just one day. Now, we're obviously two months down the, the path from that, but it's still quite a spectacular sight. And it highlights something I mentioned before, and that is the multicultural nature of the night sky. We have stories from Asia, we have stories from the Middle East, we have star names from the Middle East, we have indigenous stories, and of course the traditional Greek and Roman. There's something about the stars that every culture looks up and enjoys, and of course makes use. September is actually a very good month to spot Jove, Jupiter, king of the ancient Roman gods, and the biggest of the planets. What you need to do is look almost directly overhead for the teapot shape of Sagittarius and then drop down towards the east ever so slightly to the next zodiac constellation of Capricornus, the sea goat, which, remember, looks a bit like a slightly bent triangle. There will be one very bright star-like object in that part of the sky. Of course, it's not a star. It is the planet Jupiter, largest of all the planets, king of the gods. Now, observations of Jupiter, in fact, 400 years ago this year, which is why we have the International Year of Astronomy this year, by Galileo Galilei, changed our perception of the universe forever. And if you're patient and have a good pair of binoculars on a tripod or a small telescope, you can actually duplicate these observations. You see, in the past, people believed that the Earth was the centre of the universe. Galileo came along with his telescope and observed Jupiter and he saw that on either side of Jupiter there were effectively a dance of star-like objects which we now know to be the Galilean moons. 
Now over a week he observed that these four points of light seemed to change position. One night there'd be one on one side and three on the other. The next night two on one side, two on the other. The next night four on one side, none on the other. And he simply observed these points of light dance around Jupiter for just a week. And he came to the earth-shattering conclusion that these points of light were indeed moons of Jupiter that were in orbit of Jupiter, not the Earth. Now that doesn't sound like such a major thing, but 400 years ago it was indeed and effectively changed our perception of the universe forever. So if you can, have a look at Jupiter. Even with a small telescope, although it can be difficult to find, I must admit, have a look at it and you may be able to see the stripes on Jupiter which represent the equatorial belts and look for the four Galilean moons of Io, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto. So September is a great time to find Jupiter. Look, in case you can't find it, it actually is very easy on September the 2nd at 6.30pm when Jupiter will just be below the moon. So look for the moon in the eastern sky on the 2nd of September and just below you'll be able to see the planet Jupiter. Of course September also represents the month where we have one of our two yearly equinoxes. Until the year 2020 this will take place on the 23rd of September and an equinox is simply when the sun crosses from one hemisphere into the other and it effectively crosses the celestial equator, therefore giving us equal day and equal night. For September this year, the equinox will be on Wednesday the 23rd at 7.19am when the sun crosses from the northern hemisphere back into the southern hemisphere. Of course, the best time to view the moon through binoculars or a telescope or go to any observatory is at first quarter, and first quarter for the month of September is on Saturday the 26th. In fact, the worst time to view the moon is full moon, surprisingly, because there are no shadows, and that occurs earlier in the month on September the 5th. If you're a morning person, September is a good opportunity for you to see two planets, Venus and Mars. Venus you'll find very low in the east, moving from the constellation of Cancer into Leo in the first half of the month. And on the 17th of September, the crescent moon is just to the right of the planet Venus. Venus is, of course, very easy to find because it is so astoundingly bright. Mars, on the other hand, is not so bright. But it will be in the morning sky in the northeast in the constellation of Gemini the Twins. And on the 14th of September, Mars will be very close to the crescent moon. And of course, now that we've mentioned observing Jupiter and the effect that it's had on our perception of the universe, it's a fantastic time to check our website about the new exhibition opening at the Powerhouse Museum to celebrate the International Year of Astronomy, From Earth to the Universe, where you'll actually be able to see some of the most spectacular images of the stars and planets taken from around the world, and of course, indeed, a replica of Galileo's telescope. And don't forget to visit our website at www.powerhousemuseum.com to check for the opening date of this spectacular new exhibition. 
This has been Geoffrey Wyatt on behalf of Sydney Observatory. We hope you've enjoyed your night sky guide for September 2009.